the following message is by Pastor Jason in, uh, number Pauly. of words. More information so from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com so, uh, backslash Harmony Bible uh, go before Church. the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be here today to look to your word, to sing our praises to you to celebrate communion together as a family, as a body. And God, I thank You for Your Son, Jesus. I thank You for the Gospel. And God, that we have this opportunity to reflect on it, to uh, spend this time thinking about how we might live in light of the Gospel. God, I pray that as we look to Your Word, that we would not just be hearers, but also doers of Your Word. I pray that You would guide us into application, that we would take what we have learned here today and apply it to our lives Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and every day of this week. God, I pray also for your churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world this morning. I pray for them that they would worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray especially for our brothers and sisters down the road at Spruce Head Community Church, that you'd be with them, be with Pastor Chris, and be with the church in this time of transition and just work mightily in and through Him and His ministry, and just bless and encourage that body of believers in You. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Obviously taking a little bit of a break last week as we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. I pray that uh, each and every day you celebrate the resurrection of Christ, as that is very real and applicable to your life. Every day. So as we've worked, walked through the book of 1 Corinthians, we've seen Paul begin to deal with various issues. The book uh, began with uh, laying the foundation of the Gospel, and Paul is continuing to build on that foundation and dealing with very practical issues. We've been dealing a lot with marriage, dealing a lot with, um, uh, with, with sex and marriage, dealing a lot with lawsuits, very, very practical things that we can apply to our lives here uh, in the 21st century century. And it seems as though Paul's dealing with some specific questions that have been written to him uh, from this church that Paul served as the pastor of the church in Corinth for about a year and a half. And as their, their former pastor, as an apostle, they're writing to him with some specific questions that they have. And Paul is beginning to deal with these questions one by one. So without further ado, let's look at our text this morning. It's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 24. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 24. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches... Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are also able to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, 
He who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So in this section, Paul continues to address how the believers in Corinth should live now that they've been transformed by the Gospel. And over the last several weeks, as we've worked through this middle section of 1 Corinthians, and we've seen, as I mentioned, that Paul's addressing some specific questions. And while we don't know, we don't have a written record of those specific questions, we don't know exactly what those questions were, we can begin to piece together much of what they were asking by the responses that Paul provides here in his text. We know that they're asking questions because in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, so he's addressing these specific things. So we know, for example, that they were asking about the profitability of living a life of celibacy versus being sexually active, for Paul addresses that issue in the early verses of chapter 7. We also know that they were asking questions regarding marriage and divorce because Paul speaks specifically to those issues and whether one should change their marital status. In other words, those who were single were apparently asking whether they should get married or whether they should stay single. And those who were married were asking if they should stay married or get a divorce. Well, on one hand, it's very encouraging to think that the believers in Corinth were asking such questions. It's encouraging because they must have understood, at least on some level, that the gospel had profound implications for the way they were to live. In other words, they understood that as a follower of Jesus Christ, they could not just do whatever they pleased. That they were now called to submit to His plan and His will for their lives. You see, Being a Christian is not just about adopting some belief system. As James 2.19 says, you believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Then James goes on to make the point that faith without life change really isn't faith at all. And this teaching, I believe, is severely lacking in the church today. Much of the church, though probably not purposeful, much of the church has created this idea in people's minds that being a Christian is about believing certain facts. Believing that you're a sinner. Believing that Jesus died, that He lived a sinless life and that He died on the cross to pay your sin debt. Believing that He rose again on the third day. And those are all essential parts of the Gospel. They're essential parts that must be believed. However, it must be stressed that being a Christian involves more than, more than that. It must be stressed that being a Christian involves God reaching down into someone's life and taking out their heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. That it involves God making someone a new creature, a new creation in Christ. It means that being a Christian is not just about being given some new facts to believe, but instead a whole new purpose and direction in life. You see, being a Christian is not just about making a decision for Christ. 
That may sound crazy. Being a Christian is more than just about making a decision for Christ. It's more than just walking an aisle or saying a prayer, saying, I made this decision one time. Instead, being a Christian is about the work of God in one's life, whereby they orient their lives toward Christ. It's about being a Christ follower. You see, it begins with a decision, but it continues day by day. And it's decision after decision after decision. That's what being a Christian is all about. It's remaining and abiding in Christ. I was talking last week uh, over Easter dinner with a family member about uh, a situation at a, at a church that this family member attends where the pastor had uh, said the sinner's prayer, presented the gospel and said the sinner's prayer, and that some people responded, praise God, to that opportunity. And at the same rate, this, this person said, well, you know, I'm, I'm concerned because I'm not sure that, people, that, so, that some of the people understood exactly what they were even saying. That they didn't understand what repentance was. They just repeated words, and then the response after the repeating of the words was, you're saved, you're born again, you're now, you, your eternity is now set, you are secure in heaven. I thought, I don't know. I remember one time uh, doing an uh, evangelistic event, and it was a children's event, and many children uh, responded to the gospel. They came forward to make a decision for Christ. And I remember uh, one of the, the elders of this church had said, well, how many people got saved? And I said, well, time will tell. And, and I don't mean to be crass. I don't mean to, to take that statement lightly, but to say, time will tell. It's easy to walk an aisle. It's easy to go into a room with a counselor and say, yeah, I, I think I believe that. But then time will tell if the decision to follow Christ is, continued, is continually made again and again and again. We see that all the time. We see that on Facebook where you see, you see evangel, evangelists post these comments about the number of people that got saved. And, and I don't mean to cast this doubt and skepticism into our minds and say people don't get saved today. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that a simple walking an aisle, saying a prayer, is not what being a Christian is about. Now I also want to be careful because I'm in dangerous territory here. Because I don't want you to hear me say that salvation, that we're saved by works at all. That somehow salvation is the result of us obeying Jesus' commands. I'm not saying that salvation is us obeying Jesus, obeying Jesus, obeying Jesus, and living this perfect life. That is not at all what salvation is about. And I know most of you well enough to know that none of you would be saved, right? Because I'm certainly, I would not be if that was the case that I disobey Jesus again and again and again. That my sin is very real in my life. It is active in my life as we discussed in Sunday school. You see, salvation is not the result of obeying Jesus' commands. Scripture does not teach that. Instead, what I'm saying is that being a Christian is not merely about adding Jesus to your life. It's not about saying a prayer. It's not about walking an aisle. Those may be evidence of an internal change that has happened. But you can't do those things with no change in direction whatsoever and think that that represents salvation. Nor am I saying 
that being a Christian is all about you changing your own life. So I'm not saying that salvation exists without change, but I'm also not saying that you must change your life in order to be a Christian. What I'm saying is that a Christian is one in whom God has miraculously worked to cause them to forsake, to lay down their own agenda, their own interests, and by grace live for Him. So genuine salvation is not the result of obedience, but it does result in obedience. Hear that. Genuine salvation is not the result of obedience, but it does result in obedience. So that being said, I think it's also important to remember that even as believers, we're not always readily submissive. We're not always readily obedient to what God would have for us. I mean, yes, we want what Jesus wants, right? I think most of us would say that, but we also want what we want. We just want His desires to be the same as our desires. We say, I want God's will for my life, but I want a new truck, a new boat, a new job. So I want God's will for my life to include those things. So while it's encouraging to think that the believers in Corinth were writing and asking these questions of Paul, it's also naive to think that they were writing them with pure motives. It's naive to think that they were writing these questions with a motive that, wasn't, that was untainted by sin. You see, our selfish nature frequently gets in the way. And we ask things like, can I, instead of, should I? We ask, is this lawful, when instead we should be asking, is this profitable? In other words, we ask, we should ask, will this bring glory to Christ and help me grow in my walk with Him? And more often than not, the question, can I, gets asked because of a lack of contentment. We're not content with the car we have. We're not content with the house we have, or the job we have, or if you're like me, the shoes that you have, right? Or the spouse that you have. So we ask, can I get a new one? Right? I'm not content with all these things, so can I get a new one? And, and it, really, that's what's happening here in the book of 1 Corinthians. So as we dig into today's text, we will see that Paul's focus is not so much on changing one's circumstances, but instead with changing one's attitude. So the first point in our sermon outline as we dig into our text, the first point is, number one, the call for contentment. The call for contentment. Look at verses 17, 20, and 24 with me of our text. Verse 17. Paul writes, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, notice the individual nature of these verses, that each one has a different station, a different situation in which they were called. In this manner, let him walk. Let him continue in this manner. So I titled this message, Walking in Place. Right? And I thought of putting a treadmill up here and actually doing a treadmill the whole time that I'm... Because the point is that it's, there's, there's movement, there's obedience, that you're, you are walking with Christ, but you're doing so where you have been called. That you're doing so in the manner in which you were called. And he says, and so, so there's this individual nature, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him individually walk. And then he says, and so I direct in all the churches. That this is a truth that doesn't exist just in the church in Corinth, but for all churches of all time, 
that each one should walk with God in the situation in which he has been called. In verse 20, he goes and says it again, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. He should remain, he should stay where he is. And verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So Paul repeats the same message three times in this short section. He essentially says, stay put or remain where you are. This clearly doesn't mean that it's wrong to change jobs or to move or to pursue new opportunities for ministry. This is the Apostle Paul writing Who's writing this. The very same apostle who went on multiple missionary journeys, proclaiming the gospel throughout the known world. Paul didn't say, well, i got to stay where I am. You know, I was called, I'm here, and i just got to stay right here. And just He was active. The term calling used throughout this section does not refer to one's vocational call which is what we often think of. My calling is to be a pastor. Your calling is to be a, a carpenter or a lawyer or whatever. It's not, re- it's not with regard to one's vocation in this section, but it does have clear application for one's vocation, as we will see. Instead, it refers instead to one's call to salvation. And his point is that the Gospel isn't about changing your circumstances. It is, as we have just discussed, it's about changing you. See, there are many false Gospels out there. And it's a false Gospel that says that Jesus died to make you financially successful. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It's a false Gospel that that says that Jesus died to make your life free from troubles. It's a false gospel that says that if you follow Jesus, all your relationships will work, your marriage will work, and everything will work, and you'll be free from conflict. I look at the life of Jesus, and I see one who did not have a place to lay his head. I look at the life of Jesus, and I see not financial success, but trouble. I see not troubles, I see not people flocking to him, but instead troubles in his life. Constantly going from place to place where people wanting to kill him. I see not great personal relationships where everybody loved him, but instead him being a dividing line. In reality, you may very well become a follower of Jesus and experience financial ruin. You may become a follower of Jesus and experience a life of trials and tribulation. You may even become a follower of Jesus and have a spouse who doesn't love or respect you or your faith. You see, it's a false gospel that says that Jesus died to change your life circumstances. That's why 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus, in John 16.33 said himself, in the world you will have tribulation. And furthermore, in John 17, when he prays for believers, he says this, John 17, part of the high priestly prayer, verses 13 through 17, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they, believers, may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them, to, I have given them your word, 
And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And he goes on and he says to the Father, he says, Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Don't change their circumstances. You don't need to take them out of the world. He says, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. See, Jesus doesn't pray that our circumstances would change, but that we would be changed. And we would learn a great deal from this. That I don't know about you, but when my life, when, when trials come, when trouble comes, far too frequently I'm going, Lord, change this. Lord, take it away. And instead I need to say, Lord, help me to be more like you. I've said this before, and I, I, I can't express how much this, how hard this was for me, but I remember standing in a pulpit and praying, and praying genuinely. Lord, bring whatever You need to bring into my life to make me more like Your Son, Jesus. Whatever it takes. And within a few short weeks, stepping down from ministry and, my whole, and moving out of state, my whole life being turned upside down. And in the time going, Lord, this is not what I had in mind. But we would do well to say the same thing. Lord, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. And even as I say that, I think of things that I don't want it to take. I think, well, I mean that, but not that. And at the same rate, I say, Lord, whatever it takes to make me more like Your Son, Jesus. That I'm the one who needs to change, not my circumstances. See, Jesus doesn't pray that our circumstances would change, but that we would be changed. That we would be sanctified. That we would be set apart in the truth. And that even though we will be hated, even though our life will not be easy, He says, this way they may have My joy made full in themselves. You see, we are far too often concerned not with our attitude, but instead with all that is wrong with our circumstances. That's why the first time I meet someone for biblical counseling, I always tell them that my objective is to change the way they think. I usually will tell them that I'm after their brain. Because the goal of biblical counseling is to change the way you think. And I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm talking about the power of biblical thinking. In Isaiah 55, we see this. Uh, Isaiah writes, for my thoughts, uh, or Isaiah is writing in verses 8 and 9, he's speaking of God's words, but he writes, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, or nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In Genesis 6:5, then the Lord saw the wickedness, that the wickedness of man was great on all the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In 2 Corinthians 10:5 says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. See, what we need is a change of our thought process. As Psalm 119 says, I have inclined my heart, I've directed my heart, the heart being the place of the person, not the place of emotion, but the place of thinking as well. I've inclined my thinking to perform your statutes. 
I need to think biblically so that I can respond biblically. You see, one of the issues that we have is that we often give too much credit to stimuli and the things coming into our lives, right? That instead, when we talk about stimuli, and I've I've shared this before, but stimuli produces thoughts. And thoughts produce emotions, and emotions produce actions. And that produces more thoughts, more emotions, and more actions, and that ultimately builds character. So stimuli comes into my life. Something comes on the TV screen. And what is the first thing I do? I think about it. And as I think about it, that creates an emotion within inside of me. And that, produce, that emotion produces an action, which builds more thoughts, more emotions, more actions. And ultimately drives the character of who I have become. And instead we give so much credit to stimuli. We say, oh, I need to shut off the TV. right? Or I need to change my emotions. That's what secular counseling says, by the way. It says you need to change your emotions. And what biblical counseling says is, no, you need to change your thinking. That when that stimuli comes, you need to think about it biblically. That when there's something inappropriate on TV, you need to think, how should I respond to this in light of the Scripture? That produces the right emotion. That when stimuli comes and your neighbor gives you a dirty look over the fence, right? that should produce, you should think about it biblically, and that produces a right response. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. But instead, because we don't think biblically, He gives us a dirty look, and we shoot Him a dirty look back. Because we have not thought biblically about what the Scripture says. That produces an emotion. I hate Him for giving me a dirty look. So I'm going to shoot a dirty look back. Instead, we should say, God calls me to love Him. And this emotion that's bubbling up inside of me is love. Because He calls me to that. And therefore, you know why He gave me a dirty look? I'm going to bake Him some cookies. And I'm going to take them over to Him. Nobody wants me baking them cookies. I'll get Kim to bake cookies. And I'll take them over to Him, right? I've done this before. I'll, I'll do this again, right? We do this. It's been a long time. The, the floor is barely stained anymore, right? What's inside this bottle? What's, what's, what's coming out of this bottle? Right? Why? Because there's water in the bottle, right? It's not because I'm hitting the bottle. It's because water is inside the bottle. So when you're provoked, what comes out of you is not because you're being provoked. It's because it's what's inside of you. So when your neighbor gives you a dirty look and you get angry, it's not because your neighbor's doing it that you're getting angry. It's because anger is inside of you and you need to change the way you think. See, that's why Scripture says, that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Remember, I remember meeting with a married couple one time, and I remember asking them, for meeting with them for marriage counseling, and I remember asking them, I turned to the husband, I said, tell me the three biggest faults or issues that you have with your wife. And he said, she's not affectionate, she's too independent, and she's insensitive. And I said to the wife, I said, tell me the three biggest faults or issues that you have with your husband. She said, he's clingy, He's needy, and he's emotional. And I said, husband, why do you think God would give you a wife who's not affectionate, who's independent and insensitive? He said, well, probably because I'm clingy, I'm needy, and I'm emotional. And I need to grow. 
I need to grow in my trust in the Lord and my relationship with her. And I said, why, why, would, why would God give you a husband who's, who's clingy, needy, and emotional? And she said, I have no idea. Right? We sometimes fail to see what God has for us. Instead of saying, my circumstances need to change, my wife's the problem, my husband's the problem, instead we need to say, I'm the one who needs to change. I need to grow. The problem is internal, not external. So when Paul says, remain in the condition in which you are called, he does not mean that one's circumstances should never change. Don't hear me say that. There are times when one's circumstances should change. But instead, what he's saying is that joy and contentment are not found in the changing of one's circumstances, but in the changing of one's perspective. See, what is needed first and foremost is internal change, not external change. So having seen the first point in our sermon outline, number one, the call for contentment. Not that our circumstances need to change, but instead that we need to change. Now let's consider the second point in our sermon outline. Number two, the call for obedience. Look at verses 18 through 19 with me. The call for obedience. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commands of God. Circumcision was extremely important to the Jews, for it was a sign that they were God's covenant people. So when Paul says, Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. It would have come as a shock to many. His point, however, is to simply reiterate what he's been saying throughout the text. That the change that is needed in one's life is internal, not external. Circumcision, kind of like baptism, was an outward sign. And just as baptism does not save anyone... Neither does or neither did circumcision. So Paul stresses the point that what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Under Old Testament law, by the way, circumcision was a command of God. But circumcision without heart change was nothing. When we read the book of Acts, we see that the issue of circumcision was a big deal in the early church. You know, the question arose as to whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. In fact, the issue of slavery that we'll see in a few minutes was a big deal in the church. And Paul points to two of the biggest issues that could ever be thought of. And they say, you're saying that I need to change? I need to change? It's not external. It's not my situation that needs to change, but it's me? And then Paul says, yes, and I'm going to give you two of the biggest examples I could ever give you. I'm going to give you circumcision. I'm going to give you slavery. See, the issue of circumcision was a big deal in the church, and the question arose as to whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Essentially, whether they needed to become Jews in order to become Christians. Did they first need to become Jewish in order to become Christian? Did they need to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved? And the Scriptures make it clear that salvation does not come from the keeping of the law, but by grace through faith, that Christ came to fulfill the law. In fact, in the book of Galatians, 
chapter 5, verse 12, Paul goes so far as to say about those who are advocating that Gentiles be circumcised, he says in a rather graphic way, he says, I wish they would mutilate themselves. He says, you know what, they're so concerned with circumcision, I tell you what, they ought to circumcise themselves. He goes on and says, believers are free from the law. But then he goes on and says, however, we must not turn our freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. We must not use our freedom to serve our fleshly desires, but instead what matters is obedience to Christ. Yes, you're set free from the law, but as as one who has been set free, now serve Christ. So his point there, much like here, is that the issue is one of interchange and not outward conformity. So when Paul speaks of circumcision and uncircumcision, He's speaking specifically, both specifically to the issue of circumcision and more broadly to cultural and societal differences. Specifically, he is dealing with the fact that many in the church had been apparently pushing for the circumcision of some, while others may have even been promoting the idea of uncircumcision. When we read uh, Jewish history, we understand that history attests to the fact that some Jews became embarrassed by the fact that they had been circumcised. And and in a Roman world where they bathed and exercised at the gymnasium, they wanted to look more like the world around them. And they would actually undergo surgery to correct their circumcision. Paul says, if you were born, if you were called as a believer, while uncircumcised, yes, God has received the Gentiles. Don't seek to be uncircumcised. And in Acts 15, we read of the apostles dealing with the issue of whether unbelievers, whether Gentiles should be circumcised. And they say, no, no, for God's grace doesn't come through keeping of the law. That it is grace, it is unmerited favor, it is by Christ that one is saved. So he's dealing specifically with the issue of circumcision and uncircumcision. But more broadly, the term circumcision and uncircumcision are commonly used in Scripture to refer to Jews and Gentiles. So Paul's point is that it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. What matters is obedience to Christ. If you're a Jew, don't try to become a Gentile. If you're a Gentile when you're called, don't try to become a Jew. What matters is obedience to Christ. It's precisely what Paul is saying here. Don't try to be who you think others want you to be. Instead, Be obedient to Christ. Submit to His rule and His authority over your life. It's not about outward change. It's about internal change. Now look at verses 21-23 through with me. He says, Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Just a brief side note here. The Bible does not promote slavery, but it does indeed regulate slavery. So furthermore, when we think about the issue of slavery, we need to understand that what's in view here is not at all what we think of in 21st century America. We think of America's situation with slavery. That is not at all the way slavery is seen here in this text. That slaves were a part of a household that they could have been well-respected, that they were lawyers and doctors served as slaves. 
the slave, slavery was voluntary, something that somebody sold themselves into, that the slavery, our, our idea of taking a, a ship and going to another continent and stealing people and bringing them here to work under forced labor is not at all what Paul has in mind here. But also I want you to know that the Scriptures do not condone that kind of behavior whatsoever. But it does regulate what was seen as slavery then. Also, I want you to know that the Bible has been the greatest tool in ending slavery. That the Bible is the greatest tool because it doesn't change external circumstances. Instead, it changes the heart. And instead, in America, we would learn well from this. We would learn well as we think about the issue of abortion. With over 50 million Americans slaughtered in this country. And instead we say, we need to pass legislation. We need to pass legislation. We need to, we need to protest. And those things may have their place, but that's external change. I'm telling you right now, what needs to change is what needs to change is our hearts, our attitudes. We need internal change if we're ever going to affect change in that realm. So the point here is, don't worry about your social status. Paul's addressing slaves. And I don't want to get, I don't want to get caught up on the issue of slavery and miss the point of what Paul is saying here in this dramatic example Don't worry about your social status. Bloom where you're planted. Said Paul is saying, make the most of every opportunity wherever God has you. Has God made you a stay-at-home mom? Then glorify God in the changing of diapers and the constant cleaning of the mess that kids make. Has God called you to fix computers? Well then glorify God in the fixing of computers. Has God called you to be a doctor or a lawyer? Then glorify God in that. The point is, live out your life in obedience to Christ. Another principle we should take from this section is, don't worry about that which you cannot change. Don't worry about that which you cannot change. Look at verse 21 again with me. Verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 7. He says, Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. If you are able to become free, great, become free. It's better to be free than to be a slave of men. However, if you're a slave and you can't change it, don't worry about it. What matters is obedience to Christ. What matters is living a life that brings glory to Him. So you're a garbage man, and you don't want to be a garbage man. Don't worry about it. Bring glory to Christ. Whatever your social status is, So you live in a ranch and you want to live in a cape. I don't know. So you want to have a motorcycle and you don't. Don't worry about it. Bring glory to God. Don't worry about that which you cannot change. It's interesting that he says, but if you are able also to become free, rather do that. And the implication there in the Greek is glorify God in that situation too. The the implication is, you know, so you're a slave. Glorify God. And if you're able to become free, well then glorify God. Nothing changes. And then he says, remember, in Christ, you're free anyway. So this life, you may be on the low rung of the social ladder for a little while. You may be on the top rung for a little while. But you know what? As has been said many times, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
that at the end of the day, we're all sinners saved by grace, and that none of that's going to matter 100 years from now or 200 years from now. What matters is glorifying God in the situation that we find ourselves in. So just as a review, we've seen, number one, the call for contentment, the idea that we're not to seek external change, and number two, the call for obedience, that we should seek internal change, that we should change our attitudes, be conformed to the image of Christ, and seek His will for our lives. So here's the question, the million-dollar question. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically, apply all of this to our lives? Well, I named the message Walking in Place, as I mentioned. Because that's what we must do. We must walk with the Lord wherever He has us. So we're here as a body. We must walk with Him where He has us as a body at this time. I've been part of churches where all that can be thought about is what God, might, what God had in the past. Remember, remember when this church was built Remember when this church was built and we were doing all these mighty things and I was spilling water all over myself. Remember when this church was built we were doing all these mighty things all that time ago, how awesome it was. Or I've been part of churches who all they can think about is what God might do at some point. Oh, someday, you know, I just... Imagine if we could have like a 12-piece band up here for the worship team and we could have like trumpets and saxophones and we could have maybe lights and fireworks... Instead, God says, bloom where you're planted. Walk where you are. Be used where he has you. That's the point of Paul's message here. So as we think about that, we need to obey the Lord wherever we are, both as a church and as individuals. So our job maybe isn't the most glamorous job. We glorify God in our work. Maybe the job of of just living with our family, day in and day out, and the family struggles, the the situations of life, they bring us down, but instead we glorify God where we are planted. So as we consider this, I want to encourage you, number one, be content to be used wherever God has you, whether at work, whether with your social status or your family, be content wherever God has you. Number two, don't worry about that which you cannot change. Don't worry about other people. Don't worry about thinking that somehow if your external situations will change, that somehow things are going to get better. Instead, focus on that which you can change, and that is your relationship with the Lord, your attitude toward those who are in your life. I think this also applies to our government as we deal with an election year. Don't worry about that which you cannot change. Yes, we should be active. And that's the third point. Make the most of every opportunity. If you have the ability to become free, then do so. Use that too. But don't worry about that which you cannot change. If you can't, then you can't. Instead, what really is needed is internal change, not external change. And then lastly, we need to encourage one another and spur one another on to love and good deeds as we work through these principles of being content, of not worrying about that which we cannot change, and making the most of every opportunity of blooming where we're planted, that as we do that, we need to spur each other on to love and good deeds and obedience to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy in our lives.
God, I pray that you would indeed be with us, encourage us, and bless us. God, help us to remain where we have been called, to not think that external change will somehow make us happy or bring about the internal change that we need, but instead help us to grow in you, but also to be obedient wherever you call. God, that you may indeed call us to new and different things, but those things in and of themselves are not the means through which we will seek to be happy or find fulfillment, but instead we must seek to be obedient to you and find fulfillment in obeying your commands and blooming where we are planted in walking wherever we have been called. God, be with us as we return to our families, return to our jobs, return to our homes, and live out the application of this text of bringing you glory wherever we are. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.